0: Hello, welcome to Dyslexia Explored. I'm Darius, your podcast host today, Darius Nomderon. Today I have got a head teacher of a dyslexia school in Surrey, England, that's the UK, who's trained to a level five standard in special learning differences for the last 20 years. She's been in education for 30 years. She started off as a Montessori school teacher. She's worked in the dyslexia centers for four years. Now she's in a dyslexia school and the head teacher of this specialized dyslexia school. She's not dyslexic, but she lives with a dyslexic partner who's an entrepreneur, a musician. I'd like to introduce you the, the story of Sarah George. Sarah George, it's great to have you here.
1: Uh, Hello, Darius. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I'm looking forward to hearing your dyslexia story from a teacher's point of view who isn't dyslexic and a head teacher's point of view, no less. And even more rare is the head teacher of a dyslexia school, because there's not many of them around in the world, really.
1: No, there aren't enough of them around actually. And, um, if anybody's out there with lots of money, we could do with some more dyslexia schools because there's a huge demand for them, huge demand. So uh, if there's anybody out there who would really like to start up some dyslexia schools, I'd love to be an advisor and a consultant. (laughs) Maybe even work in one of them, you never know. But um, yeah, there's a great need for them, obviously.
0: So what, what we'd like to do here at Dyslexia Explored is to hear... A story, and every story's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. As a teacher, you'll know, and uh, we always ask, "What was life like before you learnt about dyslexia? What, what what was life like before dyslexia? And then, what woke you up to dyslexia?"
1: I think probably, like most people, I was at school from time to time with people who struggled in school there were very bright kids who couldn't engage you know with literacy and couldn't spell and yet they were incredibly bright and I was always rather fascinated with this even as a teenager when I was beginning to realise that actually we all learn slightly differently and uh, anyway I did, I did my A levels and then went on um, to d- get a degree in languages and discovered that if you have a degree in languages, the only jobs at that time available were office jobs. (laughs) So that didn't suit me at all. I did a couple of years of that, and literally, I I think probably on a daily basis, I clock-watched and couldn't wait to get out of the office. Worked a bit in London, worked kind of all over the place, and then went travelling. My mother had always been interested in... Uh, She wasn't a teacher herself, but I can remember her talking about what they used to call word blindness in the old days. Dyslexia wasn't called dyslexia. I don't know. It was very widely recognized, but it was called word blindness for quite a long time. Uh, And then my brother had a friend who was diagnosed as dyslexic, uh, who then went on to be a film producer in America. Uh, which was interesting. So all this was sort of going on in my 20s. Uh, I did a bit of traveling. I went to the States. I was near Santa Clara, where all of the big companies now, the big tech companies were operating. I believe Facebook is is there in California. And um, uh, who else? Google, they're all based in this, this, uh, this area. And I... When I came back from the States, I, I, I was there sort of travelling around for about a year or two, and what America did for me was actually give me the sense that anything was possible. Because that was at that time, you know, you're looking at sort of thirty, maybe forty years ago, everything was possible. There was there was a lot of money being put into tech, there was a lot of Arab money coming into all the countries, particularly Europe. And I came back to England, which seemed very parochial and narrow in its thinking, when I returned, but America deposited in me this sense of anything is possible. If you work hard enough, if you believe that you can do something, you believe that something can be fulfilled, you'll get it, it'll happen. Uh, And that's never left me, actually. So when I came back to England, I was wondering what to do. And my mother was talking to me about this you know, dyslexia as it was then starting to be recognized. She was talking about my brother's friend who then had gone off to America and had been very successful. And she heard of a Montessori course that was being run, opened up in the local town. Uh, at one of the colleges in a big town. So I went along to an open day. And I I had done a little bit of teaching. I'd, I'd kind of come alongside people when they'd been struggling with their reading or their spelling. And I'd just done a little bit untrained, but 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 helped people along. So I went along to this open day and I just was amazed at the teaching methods. And something just went click in me, I realised that actually this was the most amazing kind of discovery. And Dr Montessori created the multi-sensory teaching resources for children with learning difficulties. I believe initially uh, she set up a school for deprived children in Italy, and then these resources and these materials that she created then went on to help children with learning difficulties. So I trained as a Montessori teacher and I, I just was really excited actually about the way that the multi-sensory equipment laid a foundation and then expanded on that foundation and then fine-tuned the skills that the children learnt. So this, Kind of has stayed with me. I think with my teaching all the way through, this laying a firm foundation. And if you if you haven't laid a firm foundation, you can't build on a rocky foundation. And I think in the in the in those nursery school eight, uh, times, I did come across children. Some children just pick it up just like that. Letters, sounds, uh, rhyming learning to weed, they'd pick it up really, really quickly, just as I did as a child. Um, but there were those children that really didn't, really didn't seem to get it at that stage. Um, anyway, the, that particular Montessori school I stayed with for a number of years because they, the, the owner of the school then built, uh, bought a bigger building and created one of the first Montessori schools that went up to I mean in the in the end it went up to GCSE level using the Montessori equipment. So although I wasn't a traditionally trained teacher to teach classes, with my Montessori training and some experience under my belt, I gave it a go, <laughs> and started to teach um, primary age children, uh, and was really inspired by the use of of this equipment. I, I it really and I put something in me. And I saw children blossom. Even those that were really struggling found a foundation. They found something solid on which to build. But there were still those kids that didn't seem to learn, didn't seem to pick things up very quickly. Their focus was, they had difficulties with focus. They had difficulties with concentration. They Very often couldn't keep still or they were kind of gazing out of the window, no matter how interesting you tried to make the lessons, they struggled. And that was where I could see that some children within the school system, even a school system that's set up for them, are still a square peg in a round hole and they just don't fit the traditional way of teaching. And that was what inspired me. That was what uh, made me find out more, I think, because I found it frustrating not being able to to reach these children and to, to help them or to be able to help them a bit, but not as much as I wanted to.
0: How long would you say you spent teaching and starting to notice this before you said, right, I'm really going to go and do something about this?
1: I had I I taught in that school probably for about four or five years and um then I got married and um you know had with small children getting pregnant and everything, you can't you know I did take time out from teaching. But actually when I was pregnant with my second child, I decided that then I would train on and found find out a lot more about dyslexia.
0: So, so what so, was it that actually galvanize you to say right you know I'm going to specialize in this was it a person was it some sort of encounter what, what was that moment of decision
1: I think it was a growing frustration in me having taught the children that I was teaching and finding that I couldn't I didn't have the skills to help some of them right uh, and that I found frustrating and when I, when I um, gave up teaching um, in a school, I was still tutoring from home. So I was continuing to come across these children that really didn't seem to get it. And I, I didn't know what to do about it. And that, that was, it was the frustration, I think, that drove me
0: Fascinating. To,
1: to train on.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So when I was pregnant with my second child, I, I trained on and did the level five. Specific learning difficulty. uh, There a teacher training course, uh, and I trained at a centre called the Helen Arkell Dyslexia Centre. Some some of your listeners will have heard of that. It's a very well known training college. I was very lucky to get on the course, and again, a bit like my Montessori training, it just really opened my eyes to a whole new way of teaching, and it was a really intensive course. It's for I, I can highly recommend it to any teacher that wants wants to train on. The Level 5 course is a, a really intensive, very uh, informative course. You learn to make your own resources. You learn to do case studies. I just found the whole thing really enjoyable, really hard work, but very, very interesting.
0: How long did it take?
1: Well, it was an intensive years course. Wow: So it was one day a week, actually in college, but then the rest of the time you were doing the work from home. Uh, in those days, there wasn't online learning. So it was all project work, and then you take your work back the following week. but it was well worth doing. And I have to say that level five course really opened up some doors for me personally, sort of career-wise, that wouldn't have opened had I not, not done the course.
0: So when we ask, when I, I, so you basically, your main challenge that sort of presented itself was, wasn't your own child or your own dyslexia. It was actually this challenge of how do you teach someone with dyslexia to sort of, you know, spark and get it and ignite. And I can totally see that inside of you. You know, teachers have this, if you're a teacher, you have this drive, this utter determination. How do I ignite that fire? How do I get that spark in the eyes? How do they, they suddenly go, oh, yeah, and then it feels so obvious to the other person once yes. they've recognized it and got it. And you, and, and you got that at the Arkness, Helen Arkness Center.
1: Yeah, the, the Helen Arkell Center teaches you how to teach in a, in a multisensory way. Yes. So you're using visuals, you're using um, auditory um, uh, prompts, you're using lots of different teaching strategies that you wouldn't normally learn. You're also learning about how the dyslexic brain works. Every dyslexic brain is different. <laughs> so you know it's a journey it's a whole it's always been a journey of discovery because every dyslexic individual that I've come across work, operates completely differently but there are obviously certain traits that tend to follow through and that's the phonological awareness the difficulty with reading and spelling but some dyslexics don't have that difficulty some dyslexics yeah. have you know difficulties with short term memory and auditory processing so it's sometimes really difficult to recognize yes um, and it's learning to teach all of those to pitch it to the individual that has particular issues with particular things that was the challenge for me teasing out the difficulties and then trying to teach them using their strengths yes that's the thing i mean you do that with any child if you're if you're a teacher anyway but sometimes with dyslexic individuals they're not all the same obviously but but you you do get certain children that have real strengths in a particular area so you need to learn to key into to those areas to help them to reach them and and bring them through to what they need to learn so huge challenge so
0: in that challenge you've now got the reward of being the head teacher of a dyslexia school tell us Tell us how that journey, how did you get to the point of being the head teacher of a dyslexia school? Tell us a bit about M- Moon Hall as well and, and where you're at at the moment.
1: Right, okay. Um, the journey to Moon Hall involved teaching at a number of different schools. I mean, when my children were a little bit older, we moved uh, from Surrey to Norfolk. The family moved up there and I I worked for four years, nearly four years, at a dyslexia center. I just walked in one day. They had a dyslexia center up there that had been, so I think that had been running for two or three years. The center itself was run by a young man who is highly dyslexic and was all over the place at school, um, was in fact, I think, in eventually sent to a special school and the whole... Family had to move to this special school because he found it so difficult to learn, however he was he was and still is incredibly bright and entrepreneurial and he was lovely to work for because he was it was a bit of a taste of what I saw in America. You bring an idea to him to expand the business or something that he could could do with the business, and instead of dismissing it or presenting you with a whole load of red tape he would say yeah let's give it a go and and i love that i just loved that attitude it was really refreshing to work with and he just threw me in the deep end so i started off teaching children then i taught adults then i went into schools and taught inset days you know dyslexia all about dyslexia and then he trained me up to teach level 1 and level 3 dyslexia awareness courses so that took me you know up and down the countryside so he was he really opened up a a lot of challenges and a lot of learning for me it was a steep learning curve but I absolutely loved it you know that's I'm just that kind of person I think just throw me in the deep end and I'll I'll make sure I swim Um, so it was a lot of fun uh, and he's amazing you know his his particular he's opened up dyslexia centers now in three different cities and has expanded the whole business and and he teaches you know he has teaching for adults uh he does uh disabled students allowance assessments i mean it it just covers everything dyslexia
0: fantastic what's his name
1: his name is martin parsonage
0: well we'll give martin parsonage a shout out in the show notes
1: yes do and he runs the indigo dyslexia center okay yeah. That's now based in Norwich, in Bury St Edmunds, and now he's opened one up in Cambridge. So he has a lot of student activity, obviously there, uh, and he's doing really well. And you know, all all credit to him because he's.
0: And so, is that how you got to Moon Hall? So tell us the Moon Hall story.
1: Okay, and so that. that how that long was, have you I've been at Moon been. Hall? I've only been at Moon Hall for um, oh, it must be coming up for two years. Oh. Not not very long, but, but um, yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of a journey. I, I actually, um, sadly, went through a divorce with my husband and I moved back to Surrey. And I started working part-time in a local prep school in the SEN department, the Special Educational Needs Department. It wasn't... There were some dyslexic children. There were some highly dyslexic children there. So it was good to get back into... You know working in a school I really enjoyed it working as part of a team the sen team working with other people towards you know supporting children and I worked there for a little while and I met the current uh, executive head of moon Hall I met her there because she was head of science at that time and then anyway we ended up going our separate ways i then I then landed a rather super job in a uh, a large independent school in Sussex as head of learning support for the prep school. Uh, and that was, again, it was just all part of my journey. And about half of the prep school there, although it wasn't a specialist school, half of them were on the SEN register for the school. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: Half of the school had SEN
1: Yes, half of the prep school. Only two children had... EHCPs which are educational healthcare plans two children there had those but the others had some form of learning need
0: Wow, do you think that often happens with uh, private schools you know, Uh, do you think that maybe private schools can attract children with educational difficulties and so on because the parents have got dissatisfied and decide to go private to find some you know, I, I, I used to teach at the Edinburgh Steiner School. For oh,
1: example. right, okay. Yeah.
0: So, you're yeah. Montessori, I'm Steiner. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was my, I've got a very similar impulse as you, and I'm dyslexic, so to teach. And often a lot of parents where their children have got difficulties that they're not quite sure what they are, but they're not yeah. happy at school, can come to private school. So do you think that, that has happened there. What's your observation with private education then?
1: Um, I think to teach in that particular school, it was non-selective. Um, so, so to go up into the senior section of the school, there was no common entrance exam.
0: Yes. And um,
1: So for a, a parent with, who could afford to the private education, to send their children with, with learning needs to that particular school, it filled a particular niche. I think that school and um, the prep school, obviously that the prep school was the school, that it, it, it was the, the area that I headed up the learning support, but the whole school ethos was, it was lovely school, there was a lot of sport going on, creative arts, performing arts, um, and the facilities were excellent. So for a dyslexic pupil, it was a really yeah. super school to be at. And What's the school
0: out of interest?
1: It's uh, Seaford College in Petworth.
0: Can you say that again?
1: Seaford College. In Seaford Petworth. College. Yes. Okay,
0: and so Moon Hall. Tell us a bit about Moon Hall. What kind of, what, so for those that are listening, some people will never have heard of a specialised dyslexia school. They'll, yeah you know what is a specialized dyslexia school what what is moon hall is it a typical dyslexia school is it has it is it part of a network is it a franchise or some sort or is it some tell us about moon hall
1: okay so so i'm quite interested because what's a typical dyslexia school yes well i mean
0: you know like i don't know (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, I'm not saying there is a typical one you probably know yeah. more because but the thing is I imagine in I know in America, for example, there's a lot more dyslexia centers, for example, yeah. you know, and then there are a lot more dyslexia schools, yeah. there's a very strong Orton Gillingham focus in terms of learning to read and process. Uh, reading and com- uh, information yeah. you know so there are more systems in america and I, I, and and what i i notice across the world is that some place there's a specific system that's been headed up by an individual and it started to sort of multiply out and yeah. other places it's completely just grown up independently Around probably an individual or person or a, a technique, maybe you know. So there's all sorts of different ways. It's, it's like an ecology around the world of, yeah. you know, a responses to dyslexia that haven't quite yet become too formalized. Yeah. You know, like the Montessori school is spread, the yeah. Steiner school is spread over you know 70 years, and many of these kind of initiatives are at their formative stage, maybe 10, 20 years into it, and then they're getting close to becoming something that might grow. I'm just yeah. intrigued. I, I don't actually know much about Moon Hall itself, Right. And background, okay. and its yeah. origins.
1: Uh, right, the origins of Moon Hall are lovely, actually, because it grew uh, as, as a little school around a kitchen table. A lady called Berry Baker, who I understand was a teacher, I may have got that wrong. I'm not sure she... I think she was a teacher. And she had a dyslexic child. Uh, She had two children, one of them was dyslexic and faced the usual frustrations. I think at that time, we're going back a few years ago.
0: How many years? Are we talking 40? I think it's about
1: 25 years ago, something like that. And she started up this little sort of education center in her house. That was called Moon Hall. Uh, It's quite interesting because I used to, when she was doing that, I actually used to live down the road in the same village and I I had a horse at the time and I used to ride past Moon Hall most days. And my mother had said to me, oh, Moon Hall, that's, that's, you know, it was my mom. She, she kept popping up, you see. She was all
0: the way through. She's the red in the whole thing, you know, kind of prompting you and pushing and you. Was, yeah.
1: And she used to say, oh, yes, that's Moon Hall. That's where the little dyslexia school is, is, is being run. Anyway, obviously, after a short amount of time, I think, uh, you know, it grew to about six children. And then they needed to find another building so uh they they built they had a building built on the ground in the grounds of another bigger independent school, and that was about twenty five years ago and that's the little school that I head up now, but about fifteen years ago, I believe they then bought a bigger building because the school was just growing organically, so the little school. The, the school that I head up has about, um, I think it has last term, 52 pupils. So it's quite a small school, but they've now started up a, a, a much bigger school, which goes through from uh, year three all the way through to GCSEs. And I, I believe the plan is to go on and, and build further. Uh, they're going to build onto the junior school and also to create more buildings eventually for a levels so So for
0: international listeners your age range of your little school of 50 plus children um how old are they
1: uh they go from year three so they're about seven and then they go up to year um year six which is 10 or 11
0: okay um so So
1: seven to 11 yeah yeah roughly seven to 11 i mean in this country of course you can't Nobody will diagnose dyslexia before the age of seven, anyway. Yeah, um, the Ed Sykes won't do that, so we take from year from age seven upwards. Um, so so my school is prep school, and the bigger school, uh, is headed up by an executive head teacher uh-huh. called Michelle Catterson, who ha- is full of vision for the whole the two schools, so she oversees the whole lot. Uh, and is has has a huge vision for the school.
0: Fantastic.
1: So Fantastic. it's grown organically. Um, there are about 120 children in the, uh, in, in the senior school now, and, so and us, it's a vision to expand.
0: Tell Just us like. a bit about from a parent's perspective, because a lot of parents will be listening to this and mm-hmm. thinking to themselves, you know, why would you send your child to a dyslexia school? As opposed to a typical school with uh, a good educa- a special education department and what are the what types of children come, what types of parents come, and help us get a little bit of an insight of what brings people to a dyslexia school
1: okay most if we go back to the independent school that I taught in, and most independent schools are the same. those that have provision for children with learning difficulties, will usually take them out of a lesson and give them one-to-one tuition. Yes. And so they're missing a lesson, and they're, they're, to their, in their eyes, they're being singled out as different. They're being- Well,
0: in, in some people's language, I'm just going to meet with Stan Gloss in a couple of days' time, if you're listening, an uh, entrepreneur from America in the biosciences he calls it the walk of shame. Yes. And it is a bit of a, I remember it when I was dyslexic, you know, Mm. oh, Darius, it's your term and you have to get up and maybe you've forgotten because you're dyslexic and someone (laughs) has to come in and remind you in the middle of a lesson, why you are not there? And, you know, you have to walk out and everyone looks at you and no one at that age wants to be looked at Mm. and different and so on. Yes. So the walk of shame is happening even in, well provided for schools, yes.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I have to say the school that I was in at Seaford College, because half of the prep school were, were dyslexic in, or had some form of learning difficulty, it wasn't quite, uh, it wasn't a walk of shame. I mean, it was just accepted that most of you had one-to-one learning support. But because of the amount of children, they only had one learning support lesson a week. Uh, so obviously there some children cope with that and, and but there are a great deal of children that don't and they need a lot more support and they need teachers that are trained to teach dyslexics and that's where Moon Hall comes in. Um, Moon Hall is a mainstream school so we follow the national curriculum. It's non-selective so the children from the prep school Can go straight into the senior school from year six to year seven without sitting an exam so that's a big plus but they are
0: can i interrupt you there for a moment because a lot of people won't understand this from around the world listeners because listeners in the uk we have the legacy of a a selection legacy that happened just after the war called the 11 plus exam and it still sort of ripples throughout the world and within the UK educational system and very much so in the private system, where a lot of private schools, if you want to get into that middle school or high school, a private middle school or a private high school, you have to sit an exam and pass it. And if you don't, you don't get selected. And so it's a selective school. And so a lot of dyslexics in the early years, You know, they might not be identified, etc. They basically get filtered out of that system. And they they aren't allowed into these private schools because they haven't passed the test. Now they often do this at 11 or 13 years old. Uh, are the sort of gate points for for these uh, tests. It doesn't happen so much in the state system anymore although there are some state schools in the UK which are grammar schools that have entrance requirements that are still government run you don't have to pay for them but they're they operate like a private school with a selection process so just for you to know so your school doesn't select in that way. Fantastic.
1: It doesn't select in that way and and I think you know any parent out there will know but even the very thought of exams for most dyslexic children will throw them into a huge, you know, anxiety, panic, because they know they're going to fail. They know they're going to be put under pressure. Yes.
0: Um,
1: so it's really important for us that although our children in every year are, are, are tested as usual for their reading and their spelling ages and science and, maths and just so that we can we have data on the children and we have to track that data um, to show Ofsted or any governing bodies that we are the children are making progress they don't sit the 11 plus they don't sit an entrance exam so the pressure is taken off um, the difference is that it's a mainstream school for children that have a first diagnosis of dyslexia. And as you will know, mo- a lot of dyslexic individuals also have other things in the pot. You know, they might have ADHD, there might be some mild a- ASD, Asperger's syndrome, you know, auditory processing difficulties. There are a lot of things that go into the pot. Um, if you're dyslexic, some children are just dyslexic and that's kind of for us a bit more straightforward. But we make sure that the children that come to us do have a first diagnosis, a main diagnosis of dyslexia. And when they come to our school, they are given taster days so that we can see, we look at all the paperwork. We like to ensure that we can support that child not every child that applies to our school can be supported by us mm. some children you know with with asperger's for example they they need a lot more attention they need a lot more to more specialized support our teachers are dyslexia trained and that's you know that's what we teach to
0: this podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Productivity Coaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. Um, you know, one of the other interesting things that is, I, I, I at Bullet Map Academy, I, I basically run for, for listeners so you understand the context, I run a basically the world's first online dyslexia club it's like an online dyslexia school after school club as it were because but it's not just tutoring one to one tutoring it's also study clubs so the children can get together and share their their notes we teach them mind mapping bullet map method of mind mapping which is a dyslexia designed for dyslexics so they talk through their maps to each other and they they kind of comment on what they like about each other's maps and it's a way of them just talking connecting learning from each other being around other dyslexics and hearing someone talk the same way that you talk etc and what i've noticed is that's a huge missing gap in a lot of dyslexic provision. Because a lot of children get that one-to-one tuition, but it's in isolation and they yeah. continue that feeling of isolation continues. You can often feel like I'm the only dyslexic in the class or in the school or whatever, although you're not. It just feels isolating. Yeah. And so what I've noticed is that I think children need a combination of a specialized system to teach them that's very systematic set and visual uh, or multi-sensory but in addition to that they need a one-to-one to help just keep them on track and where they hit a roadblock help them get over it rather than hide away struggling away for a month or two when someone in 20 minutes can help them just get over that hurdle and save a couple of months of wasted time but three i actually think you need groups of dyslexic children getting together to just talk and learn together what what's your experience of that because you've got the ultimate yeah where you've got a whole school of them what's that like
1: it's fantastic i mean the the whole atmosphere in the school we we have a a more restrictive curriculum so some of the more um, for example sciences we do biology we do uh, some children uh, some pupils go on and do physics but we, we we stick with biology because some of the Sciences are very word heavy. The children have a lot of support. There's a lot of creative, you know, performing arts and things like that. Obviously English, maths, the usual, geography and history. The children can choose. But the the thing about our school, both of our schools, the, the little school that I'm head teacher of and the larger school is that the children very often come to us. They they come at all different times of the term. Because a lot of our children might come from a state school where the classes are they're in a class of 30 or 32 children. And as you say, they've got that walk of shame, or they're put on the table with children with other learning difficulties. And and you know, there might be very noisy children or very difficult with behaviour children, and the dyslexic children are, are lumped in with, with those children. And actually a dyslexic child needs peace and quiet and an ability to focus. So very often these children are coming to us, they're highly anxious, they feel singled out, their self-esteem is very low because they, they feel as if they've failed. They're failing, you know, comparing themselves to their peers who are succeeding and moving on. So we, the children that come to us are in varying degrees of, 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 of damage very often, you know, if they've not been in a specialised dyslexia school. Our classes, we have a ratio of one teacher to eight pupils plus a teaching assistant. Our teachers are level five trained for specific learning difficulties and some of our teaching assistants are level five trained as well. Wow. So those children, it's very rare for us to actually have to remove a child and give interventions Mm -hmm. away from the class. The whole ethos of the school is to keep everybody together, just differentiate the teaching and some children get more support in the class than others, but they're all together. And the thing is, the joy is, as as you've said, you've seen the the video of the children being interviewed about the school. It's such a joy for them to come and be somewhere where they don't feel different. They fit yeah. in and they are completely accepted for their strengths and their weaknesses. Nobody's picking them out and saying, you're thick, you're stupid. You know, you can't do this and I can. There, there, there's nothing like that going on in the school. So they soon settle. I mean, we have children with school phobia that come to the school. And I can think of a little boy. You know, parents get really desperate to know what to do with their children. Yeah. When their children are terrified of going to school. They're so anxious. And this was a little 10-year-old boy. And he literally stood outside the junior school and planted. And he just wouldn't go any further. Now, we have a number of children coming like that. But I'm just thinking of him last year in the autumn term he came. He was so terrified of school, absolutely petrified of it. And the TA spent, uh, you know, a, a good sort of hour and a half with him, just tempting him in and playing with him and, you know, moved some toys outside and things like that. He went in and that first day he made a little friend Second day, it took him 10 minutes to get into school. By the end of the week, he was running into school, couldn't wait to see his friend. And that child has, I mean, occasionally he has blips, but he has settled, he's a happy little boy. Every time I've seen him, you know, he's actually in the other, the bigger school. He's not in my school, but every time I've seen him, how are you getting on, how's school, big smiles, loves it. And the parents are so grateful because they are so often at the end of their tether not knowing how to help and support their children and not being able to find the right school for them.
0: So can Um, you, can you share a little bit about, you know, I'd, I'd like to go on to the other questions where we talk a bit about from a parent's point of view, let's flip some of the questions, you know, like parents will be wondering, gosh I wish I could send my child to a dyslexia school you know I imagine if I was listening to this and I had a dyslexia child I'd be saying I want to go to that (laughs) moon hall school what kind of advice as the head teacher of a dyslexia school would you give to parents of a dyslexic child I know that's a huge question to ask because there's a huge range of need but any things that first come to mind
1: well, I'm you know I'm thinking of uh, <clears throat> the big school over at Reigate. They have 62 children on, on an educational healthcare plan, and if if a parent has a child that they believe is maybe dyslexic, uh, I mean, educational psychologist reports are very expensive to do privately. You know, you you it, they're beyond the stretch of most parents, particularly these days. You can apply to the local authority to have an assessment done of your child and and you can work with the school if your child is in a state school. You can receive funding from the local authority if they award an educational health care plan. Uh, you have to fight for it. You know, you have to fight for it because this is public funding that can fund help and support for your child within the state system. And that funding, if and when it comes through, if you've won your battle, and it can take about a year to get the funding for it, that will fund extra lessons, teaching, uh, a teaching assistant, extra help in school, might fund a speech and language therapist, an occupational therapist, these assessments will be done and paid for by the local authority. So you can apply for help from the local authority. Now we have, uh, as I said, 62 this year, children on EHCPs and those children are funded for our school. So the, the, the fees, the school fees are paid by the local authority. Wonderful. So it is possible but it's a fight.
0: <laughs> and, and your comment earlier on is that, do you believe that we need more dyslexia schools? Or yes. is it just for a few children that are extremely dyslexic and complex needs or whatever? Or do you think we need more dyslexia schools?
1: We need more dyslexia schools. We definitely need more dyslexia schools. I mean, if the national average is about 20% of our, our English, you know, the UK have some form of dyslexia that means that 20% of each classroom is dyslexic well why aren't there more schools for dyslexia dyslexic why aren't there because these dyslexic children are so uh, they go on to be entrepreneurial given the right support and the right encouragement their confidence built they can go on to be you know the businessmen of the future, the 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 performers of the future, the the you know the the leaders of the country of the future.
0: Yeah, and I know that you, as an educationalist, as a um, in your pedagogical way of thinking and forward planning, you know, you'll have heard of the World Economic Forums. You know, future characteristics, the top thirty future characteristics of the required by the workforce over the next 10 to 20 years in this Mm -hmm. new machine tech, machine learning, AI world that we're entering into more automated even in the workplace. Uh, You know, what's your view on dyslexia and the future and these children?
1: I think dyslexia is the future. You know, I I really believe that. I, I believe it wholeheartedly the 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 way i mean in the old days you know somebody would 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 study they they get into a career and they'd stay in that career and that job would be safe they'd work in the same job for 30 40 50 years sometimes and the world isn't like that anymore you know you have to have you have to be creative you need to be resourceful you need to use your strengths and cash in on your strengths to, to, to build, to start businesses, to create things. I mean, you know, it's, it, the possibilities are endless. And I think the dyslexic brain, because it, it thinks differently because of that whole spatial awareness thing that, that is, is, so, is so strong in so many dyslexic people, they can plan ahead, they can build businesses and see all the steps ahead. They might not be detailed people, they might not be very good administrators, but you know, we need everybody. We need visionaries and dyslexic people on the whole are, are visionaries. And we need those people to be planning ahead and to, seeing, to be seeing ahead 20, 30, 40 years ahead. We'll always need administrators, we'll always need detailed people but I really think they're the future, and I, I. It's frustrating for me and for the people that I work with that there isn't enough provision for the dyslexic brain. There isn't enough provision. The curriculum is still very narrow. I saw a TED talk a couple of years ago, and and this young chap. I think he was he was probably about thirteen, and he was a you know he's in America. Uh, he was already well on his way to being a multi-millionaire because he was highly dyslexic, and his parents had taken him out of school and had enabled him, allowed him to run with his strengths. And that's the key, I think, to to for parents of dyslexic children, is to recognise the strengths of your children and develop those and they may not fit into an academic curriculum, but your children's strengths, I mean, whatever they are, they can make a future out of those strengths. They can make it, they might be very artistic, they might be very sporty, then encourage that, and don't worry too much about the other. You know, there's too much emphasis, I think, on on getting exams, and, and there needs not to be.
0: And I think, i think um there was this quote i heard the other day a comedian said dyslexics either go to yale or they go to jail (laughs) and and it is quite amazing how many you know 30 percent of entrepreneurs in america are dyslexic and also 40 percent of the people in jail are dyslexic as well if not higher actually 50 percent have special education needs and and probably at least 40 have dyslexia so this concept of eventually they'll just get it mm. is not true
1: no it's not
0: and that's what I'm interested in your story because you saw these children not eventually not getting it still mm. and something had to happen to end help them get it and ignite yes and I think that's that there's often a default complacency, which is like, oh, well, just give them some extra time. Eventually they'll get it mm. and so on. And for some key things that are procedural things like learning how to read or learning how to plan or learning how to study or learning how to even find all your kit for your sports so you don't let the team down. There are processes all along the way where dyslexics need to learn how to go through a key process in order to unlock their opportunity to show their ability, whether it's on the sports pitch, in drama, learning a script, or academics. Often there's this threshold of learning a process that they don't eventually just get and so some of them don't create those worlds of possibility which they could do for us in the future
1: yeah yeah no i i completely agree and i'm i'm thinking back you know when i do used to teach one-to-one sometimes you have to approach one particular thing if you're trying to teach something with maths you have to approach one particular thing in sometimes in four or five different ways (laughs) until you see the light bulb go on
0: (laughs) yes but that
1: is so rewarding yes they get it you know and then once they've got it you have to help them keep it (laughs) yes
0: Their, <laughs> their that automatic habit learning process. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Mental
0: muscle memory. It, 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 there's a lot of resistance to the mental muscle memory, and it just disappears. Yeah.
1: Yes, it can. And, and I think you know, to to for a parent or any teacher of of um, dyslexic pupils, you need a sense of humour. <laughs> yes. You do need a sense of humour. And one of the most important things I learned actually was when I was at the Helen R. Kell Center is that one of the the tutors stood up and she said, There are some things that they'll never learn. And that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. They're obviously not going to build a career on it. It's okay for them not to learn it.
0: Yeah. I, I, I was struck by someone saying you only need to be good at one thing to be a success in life yeah. Yeah. and it's not any particular one thing but you just need to be good at one thing
1: what I do. Yes.
0: and you do that really well and yeah. then you can succeed and yeah. the, especially in the world of tech where you can find instead of five or six people interested in your one thing you could find five or six thousand people interested in your particular niche or fifty or sixty or five hundred thousand people interested in your particular thing willing to pay you for it and you're a success. Um whether you can read or spell or sometimes even plan. (laughs) Although I think I think to be a success you do need to be able to execute a plan. That's definitely a core skill you need to learn. Yeah, Um,
1: Yeah.
0: But Organizational
1: skills tricky, as as you will know as a dyslexic. I don't know whether that that is um, one of your weaknesses. You know, an organize, organize Oh,
0: definitely, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so so teaching your children as a parent, ch- teaching your children strategies to 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 organize. As you say, their PE kit, you know, their 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 books for school, help them to organize and so that they can do it themselves. Don't keep doing it for them. That's the yes. answer.
0: Let me show you something that may, will make you laugh, okay? Yeah. I've got, let, let me show you something. This This can see quite childlike. Oh! But <laughs> these are all the little sheets of paper I've done over the last 30 days. In order to increase my productivity in the day, I've got to the stage in the business where you know I'm starting to let staff members down yeah. because I'm forgetting important things I want to do. Yeah. And I, you, you just can't afford to do that when you're running a business. Yeah. And, and so I don't have my wife around to remind me or anything like that, So I, which I do at home. So what I end up doing is this little planner on a sheet yeah. of paper.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: So I take all my random ideas down this is my list. Yeah. And if I went through this list, it would just be a nightmare and is a nightmare because it's random. It's in the wrong order. There's things that would take a week to do and some things that take five minutes to do. And it just becomes unpractical. And I need to get to the stage where I've got a list of things that I can do in less than 25 minutes that are just doable. Yeah. You know, I can just do it, take it off. But to get there, I do a little map to organize my thoughts and then I take my little stickies. Now this is what I teach kids to do, but I have to do it for myself still. And then once I've done my task, I move it across and I can physically start moving my little sticky tasks across. And then I fold it up and I've got my day in my pocket. I've got all the tech, you know? iPhone X, iPad Pro, MacBook, screens, all sorts of apps. I run an app company as well, but I've still got my little bit of paper to help me stay organized and so on. And I feel like a child sometimes, but you know what? I've now got a system that I can reliably, I still get stuff done, but now I get twice as much done in a day because I have, a system that works for me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. No, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm. I'm just thinking actually of that for one particular uh, young man who's who's so dyslexic that he actually can't find his way. He has an iPad now, which he finds easier, but he finds it difficult to even find his way through the pages online. That's really hard for him, and yet. He is the most creative, bright, he's the brightest, probably one of the brightest students in the school. Can't read. Can't read at all.
0: Wow.
1: Really can't read. And yet, I mean, this is, This is, you know, he's been through a whole school dyslexia <laughs> school and he can't read. Yes. Uh, and needs a lot of support with his schoolwork. But. He is the most creative. I mean, he's he's going to make a huge success of his life because yeah. he's incredibly creative. But I'm looking at your 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 way of organizing, and I'm I'm going to steal that.
0: <laughs> go, go ahead, steal I'm it. I'm
1: going to poach it. That's yeah, yeah. brilliant because I think that will really help him.
0: I'll send you the template, and I'll send you a little please video do. that explains how to do it as well. Yeah, please in please. fact, I've got a whole course on it. Uh, because one of the things I've learned actually as a wee warning is it's easy to know the theory but there's one for example a little step that I have to follow in this process when I teach children how to map I tell them not to go straight into the mind map because it just becomes too random for you so get the randomness out in some random bullets and then (laughs) underline some key words okay but You do one line, so you basically underline half the words with one line. So if you've got, what is it, podcast, guest, reply, and book, okay? So I underline podcast, reply. But then I say to myself, between podcast and reply, which gets an extra line? I'll go for podcasts because that's the main, the more main idea. So I'm just gradually taking my big picture thinking and, and zooming it in. Do you see what
1: I mean? Yes, yes. And
0: then I'm ready to actually do the map. Otherwise I get stuck in the randomness. And so reason I'm mentioning that is as a dyslexic myself, I find there are certain key little steps that people just take for granted that are not dyslexic. They just go, yeah, make a list and put it into a map. And you're like, why doesn't it fit no. in the map for me? Because you aren't underlining. And yeah. I've noticed so many parents and teachers go, I underline two or three or four words at a time, a phrase. What? Well, no, no, not for me. It has to have the discipline of one word at a time because it focuses my mind. Otherwise, I just underline everything because yeah. everything seems important. Yes do you get my drift
1: i do completely yes i do no,
0: i'm just <laughs> saying if it doesn't work for him uh don't blame the map it's no. often a missing little step
1: no that i think that would that would really work for this young man yeah yeah definitely it's focusing his mind yeah that that's the thing because he's so full of ideas and then gets frustrated and then if he's frustrated it all you know goes to pot so Tell yeah I think a little cool. bit
0: about you know I'm, I'm passionate about mind mapping. It's, it's, it's been so helpful for me, a particular skill for me, but it isn't necessarily for everyone. Yeah. And I'm just interested to see what, you know, you've been in education for 30 years. Yeah. That was roughly when mind mapping became made popular by Tony Buzan. Yeah. He coined the name mind maps, um, et cetera. Well, how have you seen mind mapping throughout your SPLD journey?
1: I've used it a lot. In fact, I, I used to use it more probably in the, in, in the large independent school. I think probably because since I've been at Moon Hall, I went in as head Senko and then became head teacher. So I'm doing less teaching. I'm doing a lot less teaching, so I tend not to use it as much, obviously. But I have used it a lot in the past. I have found it works for some people. The visuals love it. Uh, we did experiment, actually, with a couple of the GCSE students at the last school because they found note-taking very, very difficult. She was, uh, one particular girl was doing history, which, of course, is very wordy. And we experimented with her. We, we, we helped her, supported her in, in mind mapping, taking notes on a mind map throughout the class throughout the lesson and she found that helpful but it was quite she found that she was concentrating too much on the mind mapping and then she'd missed too much of the information so it didn't work for her so we've we've played with a lot of mind mapping but certainly with the younger ones I used it a lot for planning creative writing planning their essays planning a newspaper article or something so definitely for planning i've found that's a really to really good strategy to use and because it's so visual and because they can use color i also with the uh, essay writing for example um, i helped it helped them to paragraph because i would keep things especially with the younger ones very very simple yeah so there's one bubble And then, you know, all the little bits that you want to talk about, the the theme, and then there's another bubble with the characters, um, and they would use those as a guide for their paragraphing, so that was kind of, you know, two lessons in one. Uh, Um, I've always found it very useful, it's a good, and colour is really important, of course, anyway, so.
0: And the final question, what kind of tools do you uh, use in the journey? What's in your in your travel bag? What are your tricks and tips and go-tos in terms of, I don't know, apps, techniques, tools?
1: I think they're more, I can't think of any particular app. or. I mean, obviously we use tools we've used in the recent lockdown. We've been using uh, Microsoft 365 and Teams and things like that. For, for online learning which has been really useful we use zoom we use all kinds of you know we use color tints for visual stress and but what's in my bag my tool bag my kit bag enthusiasm <laughs> sense of humor mm. vision I think encouragement you know to see to see a child grow even if they don't get. What you're trying to teach them to see them go out of your presence more encouraged and feeling more confident because of the way that you've treated them with respect and you've helped them along their journey. And that's those are in my tool bag wow. energy, um, <laughs> lots of energy. I mean, all teachers will say they're all exhausted now, we're all completely. <laughs> on our knees you know we crawl to the end of term because it's been a particularly exhausting term with the you know the couple of terms with the COVID-19 and the new online learning yeah just bags of enthusiasm and it just fantastic yeah.
0: Sarah it's been fantastic having I want to ask you about the COVID side of things but that's another huge conversation isn't oh, it it
1: is. yes it is <laughs> um,
0: we're, we're already well over time and, and So Sarah, it has been fantastic to have you on the podcast. What a joy it has been. And it's really clear that, you know, it's fantastic to see a head teacher who has so much joy and enthusiasm and determination and to, to, to see it from the inside, from the, from a teacher's point of view, who isn't dyslexic and great to hear your, that, that, encouragement and joy is in your travel bag and that's one of yes. you and me and the sense of humor i really like that that's yes, so true that's really thank sweet. you for being here
1: That's a pleasure thank you for asking me are there any
0: final things you'd like to say to folk who might be who are listening
1: i think just just uh just you just got to believe that your child if you're a parent of a dyslexic child that sense of belief uh that your child can be a huge success and success is not just all about making money is it it's just being uh, fulfilled in in what they they end up doing what they find to do in life being fulfilled being content with, with with their dyslexia not to be afraid of it but to encourage their strength.
0: that's what i'd say thank you sarah it's a pleasure this podcast is sponsored by dyslexia It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.